Oh, finally, not from a stool this morning. Um, so it's nice to, to be able to stand here and preach today. Uh, turn your Bibles this morning, the book of Job, chapters 9 and 10. Job 9 and 10, to be very clear with you, to be very fair, um, this one is a little bit of a dark journey, but there is light at the end of the tunnel. There's hope when we get there. We will not leave you hopeless this morning. I'm kind of excited. The kids are actually working on a song for our hymn of the month, but we're not going to be able to introduce it until Father's Day, and so that's kind of exciting. So um, my youngest guy, he just got a guitar at Christmas. He's planning on playing with them, so we're pretty excited about that. So um, if whatever you, wherever you are, Father's Day, it's, it'll at least be cute at the beginning. It'll be amazing. It'll be worshipful. Um, we're excited about that. Hopefully that gave you time to get to Job. Job chapters 9 and 10. Um, once again, we, we hit the prophet as peter calls him in the new testament in in really dark places and he's going to respond to bildad's unbelievably bad uh sermon and counsel and all it has done is increased his pain and so job is in a place that he's just going to once again pour out his heart i think maybe a good place to start is a phrase my dad taught me i'm sure most of you heard it from someone as well in your life if it ain't broke don't fix it uh, my dad is an electrician and is a uh, maintenance supervisor working for General Motors and uh, all these things. He learned pretty quickly, if it's, if it's not broke, don't fix it. And the reality is lots of times you can just mess up something if, if you get involved there. Well, there's another one. You, you also can't fix what you don't know is broke. If somebody doesn't tell you, you don't know what's actually wrong with something, you can't ever fix it. You're trying to diagnose. How about this guy? He's trying to prove to an online seller that he didn't receive a lamp. Hello, I ordered a lamp from you, but I never got it. You, can you provide video or photo or video proof you did not receive the item? What do you? <laughs> so he takes a slew of pictures of an empty hand. He didn't get it. Here you go. Hopefully this will prove it to you. How do you fix something when you don't know what is actually broken? Uh, maybe you've even had one of those. I, I, I hope not, but may, you know, I don't want to make your marriage rough this morning, but maybe you've even had one of those marriage moments, one of those marriage conflicts or friend conflicts even, and um, where someone has said, well, if you don't know what's wrong, I'm not going to tell you. And you're like, I genuinely just really want to know. Um, we've all maybe been there at some point and, and somewhere. And if you're here this morning, that hits a little too close to home. That's not my goal. Um, for Job and his frenemies, I would call them at this point, the signs that something is broken is obvious, right? The sudden and immediate loss of all of his wealth, the death of his 10 children, uh, the semi, at least, abandonment of his wife and the loss of all of his health. In their minds, in Job's and his frenemies' minds, he must be under the wrath of God then. And so the friends take the approach, because you're under God's wrath, you would only be under his wrath if you've sinned. So Job, whatever it is you've done, you need to repent of it, and surely then God will restore and fix you. The problem is Job is also convinced he's under the wrath of God, but he knows he didn't do anything wrong. And so what's he supposed to do? Offer some fake repentance and that's going to fix it? He, he knows that's not really the solution. And so these two chapters, 9 and 10, a lengthy speech of Job, introduce us to a new theme, really, that's going to last throughout the rest of the book. It's a new phase. It's one that's been hinted at so far by the narrator, but not presented as directly from Job himself and it's this idea that job would rather there be a court case some kind of cosmic court case whereby he would be vindicated the tension for job in this is it would seem for him to be declared innocent then 
God would have to be guilty, right? So if I've done nothing wrong, but I'm under his wrath, and we have a court case to determine, should this be, if Job is proven right, then that would have to mean that God is wrong. And Job knows that that can't be, but Job is desperate for vindication. He's like a dog chasing its tail. He deeply loves God. He can't conceive of a world where God is wrong. And it's this war between how he feels and how he thinks, his theological worldview and his experiences of suffering that are frankly, and I don't mean this in a mental health way, but they're driving Job mad with grief. And so what plays out for him is this constant war between his head and his heart. His responses, his prayers, and his statements reveal a heart that really loves God deeply, but, but also a deeply confused mind about what is happening to him. Job's greatest desire from this point forward is to be vindicated. Now, when I say vindicated, I want to be very, very clear. Job does not make it his request to return his children, his wealth, or his health, or his wife. In his mind, vindication would be God saying, Job's righteous. That is his chief, his chief concern. It's not the loss of all these things, but the sense that God doesn't love me anymore. And he wants to be proven that he doesn't deserve that. And so we'll learn this morning that ultimately it's the grace of Christ that can soothe the broken heart and settle the confused mind. He wants God to say, I love you, Job. You didn't deserve this. You are righteous. Your friends are wrong. Your own heart is wrong. You're not under my wrath. Job can't figure out why does God suddenly hate him so much. And ultimately, Job is frustrated because you can't fix what you don't know is broke. And so I want to give you maybe a big picture understanding of of the way the chapters are laid out. And very similarly to the chapters we saw a few weeks ago, chapter 9 is Job uh, largely or chiefly addressing his friends. And then chapter 10 is chiefly his prayer to God. And so that's the way they're structured. Chapter 9 has three large sections. Uh, Verses 1 through 4 introduce the theme of Job seeking for vindication. Uh, verses 5 through 24 focus on God's sovereignty, God's overall, he's powerful overall, and really present God as the opponent in the court case. And in verses 25 through 35, we're going to focus on Job's escape plan. Since you can't beat God at court, he's got to come up with some other way to, to get out of it. It's kind of like somebody that's been charged with a criminal offense and there's, uh, they set bail, but they might, if they're a flight risk, they might take their passport, put an ankle monitor on them. Somehow they want to prevent them from running from a court case they don't think they'll win. Job comes up with three ways of dealing with his grief because he feels like he can't win the court case, but he can't keep living the way he is. And so that's, that'll be chapter 9. What's interesting is chapter 10 really is the outpouring of all the confusion and the hurt that Job is experiencing. He knows that his court case plan won't work. And so he knows these three other attempts to cure his suffering or take care of his grief, they're not going to work either. And so chapter 10 just pours out his heart in front of us as he talks to God. And so what we're going to do is actually work this in reverse. I'm going to look at chapter 10 first, because chapter 10 shows us the heart of the sufferer. And then we can go back to chapter 9 and see how none of it fixes it. And so this will help us to understand even others that we work with that are suffering or grieving, and maybe even uh, help our own hearts if we're struggling or when we are struggling through those that are crushed and that are grieving deeply. And how do we help those folks? Uh, I think Christopher Ashe helpfully identifies four dominant questions in chapter 10. 
and we're going to use those to, to work our way through in the, kind of a spiritual CT, uh, a CAT scan, figure out what's going on in the head, and an EKG, figure out what's going on in the heart. First question he asks is right here in chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. I loathe my life. I will give free utterance to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. Job is not hiding at all how much he's struggling. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend against me. Does it seem good to you to oppress, to despise the work of your hands, and favor the designs of the wicked? There's this popular song that's out there right now by Matt Mayer, where he sings lyrics like this, When I feel like I'm all alone, your love defends me. The song runs through multiple verses. They're focused on suffering and the life of a Christian in spiritual battles. And it keeps coming back with this driving emphasis that's actually the title of the song, Your Love Defends Me. And Job feels 180 degrees from that. He feels like God's love isn't defending him. He feels like God is actually against him. God is against any righteousness that Job has. God is siding with the wicked people that are after Job. God is destroying everything that he's made. And by that, Job means, God, you're killing me. You're killing me, God. Why on earth are you doing this? For Job, God has a lot more in common with some crazed punk rocker who finishes his concert with his expensive guitar and starts smashing it. Why would you take something you've made or something that should be a tool, uh, an instrument, an art piece? God, you've formed me out of the clay. You've made me. You fashioned me with your own hands. He, he uses language that's very tender that way. Only to destroy me. It's a cry of why don't you love me? Have you ever had somebody look at you and say, why doesn't God love me? Maybe you've, never, maybe you've never been in the situation where you've talked to somebody that way. That's fine. Maybe your own heart, maybe you just that resonates from your own heart where there's times you say, why doesn't God love me? Those in the midst of puzzling pain are particularly susceptible to those kinds of questions in their heart. I, I think, honestly, when we go and we sit with people, we, won't, we don't want to be Eliphaz or Bildad. We don't want to be Zophar or, uh, or any of these frenemies. We want to be good friends. And, and so I want to encourage you. Um, sometimes one of the things I've had to learn over the years in ministry is there's lots of times there's questions I don't want to ask because I really am not sure I'm going to have a good answer for what they say. And it terrifies me. And I'm like, I, I've got to somehow get to a point where it's okay if I don't have the answers. And it's okay to ask and just say, I'm not sure, can we work through this? And so I want to encourage you that when you sit with those that are suffering, pre pre be prepared to hear them ask that question. Ask them if they've thought this. Do you struggle with God, the thought that God loves you? Do you, do you struggle believing that? There's a difference between what we think and how we feel. Do you struggle feeling really like God loves you? And I want to encourage you to actually take them then to Job 10. Take them to this chapter and show them that confused minds and hurting hearts of very righteous people. Job's not ungodly when he's thinking this. He's struggling. And show them that very righteous people in the midst of suffering can be wondering, does God really love me? And so his first question is, why are you against me? Second question, why are you sifting me? Verse 4, have you eyes of flesh? Do you see as a man sees? Are your days as the days of man, or your years as a man's years? That you seek out my iniquity and search for my sin. And what he's saying is, are you like a normal person, uh, and we'll learn later in the Bible, timeline, that man looks on the outside, but God looks in the heart. And Job's kind of point is, like, God, could you not just look right at me and see who I am? Why do I have to go through all this to be revealed? Or are you trying to search out who I am? That's, that's what he's complaining about. 
Have you eyes of flesh? Do you see as a man sees? Are your days as the days of man or your years as a man's years? Did you seek out my iniquity and search for my sin? Although you know that I am not guilty and there is none to deliver out of your hand. He's saying, God, why do I have to go through this to somehow prove who I am? You already know it. Sifting is testing. It's examining. It's exploring. It's observing to see what the truth of a person is. You know, trials can function very much like a sifting, testing way. Uh, they purify our faith. In 1 Peter 1, 7, it says you go through trials uh, that your faith might come forth as gold. And what it is, you superheat it, you skim off the dross, and you purify. So our faith can be purified by going through trials. James 1, 23, it can reveal do we really have faith or not. Mark 4, it can, it can reveal this reality as he spreads the seed on the soils. Some spring up, and when trials come, some fade away. So it reveals their true faith. Back in James 1.23, again, it says it can strengthen our faith. It can literally harden it, temper it like steel. One of the shows I like to watch is Forged in Fire. It's all these big, burly blacksmith guys, and they're sweating, and they're beating steel. And, and the big thing is when they quench it. They stake the, stake the steel. It's super hot, and they stick it down, usually in some kind of machine oil, so you get an equal cooling effect. And they temper it, and it comes out, and actually on the molecular level, it makes it stronger. When you and I go through puzzling pain, it's designed on a molecular level to strengthen our faith. But this sifting, the sifting that Job's even explaining, he, what he doesn't have a category for is Satan. And so Job's perspective is like God not knowing. When the, those guys in Fortune Fire and they stick the steel in, they listen for pings and and squeaks that would demonstrate a warping of the metal, they take it out and they have to look at it and examine it, and sometimes it warps or even cracks. And they don't know till they've tempered it and seen what it would do. They run a file across it to see how it responds. That's how they test it. And Job's perspective is, God, you're God, though. You don't have to do that to figure it out. So why are you doing that to me? While it can have good results, it can be used in God's providence to reveal purifying strength and faith, Satan's goal, when he sifts, is just to destroy us. And so as Job is thinking through these verses, it's important that you understand how he sees God at this point. Because a righteous person can still have a warped view of God. And he does. And so Job sees God more like Javert, the ultimate literary example of a harsh police officer looking for you to make any mistake possible. I've told you before about being a chaplain in Richmond County Sheriff's Department and riding with one guy. He was a deacon in a Baptist church. He's, he's a believer and um, fun guy to, to ride with. And he loved just like flying up behind a car and getting right on their tail. And then he'd even use his spotlight if their lights were dim on their license plate to figure out the license plate. And every single time the person he would fly up on, they would do exactly what I would do. They hit the brakes. And he'd always, I, I was like, like, aren't you scaring them? Like, what? Well, if they haven't done anything wrong, they don't have anything to be afraid of. I'm like, man, I don't know about you, but my heart rate goes up. So, some police officer, and I ain't doing anything wrong. And so Job feels like God is like Javert looking at Valjean, looking for the slightest mess up so he can drop the hammer or some harsh, angry boss. I once had one boss that nothing I ever did was good enough, ever. Man, anything I did, it wasn't good enough. And he told me one time, it's because I want to push you from being 95% to 99 or 100. I'm like, yeah, but it'd be really nice to hear a nice comment about the 95, you know? You ever work for somebody like that? You can't ever do anything right? All they ever focus on is what you do wrong. 
or like some sports coach at a combine or a tryout for a team and they're looking at every little possible mistake and so if you don't perform perfectly on that day you're not going to make the cut despite your track record leading up to that for job for job he sees god this way he knows that god doesn't need sifting to know the truth he says god you know i can't last much longer you know me better than me, then why are you doing this to me? Be prepared for those that are suffering puzzling pain to wonder why is God so bent on showcasing their weaknesses? Like, why is God on mission to show how vulnerable and weak and broken and insufficient they are? People that are suffering this way will feel humiliated before you and ashamed to communicate with you. And so it's not just that, but then Job asks the next question, why did you even make me? Verses 8 through 17. He uses incredibly tender language here when it says your hands fashioned and made me in verse 8. It, it has the concept, and it's similar language to Psalm 139 when David talks about being formed in his mother's womb and uh, in Genesis when it talks about God forming. And Job has this mindset of God tenderly making him. He says your hands fashioned and made me, and now you've destroyed me altogether. Remember that you've made me like clay. Will you return me to the dust? Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? You clothed me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews. You've granted me life and steadfast love, and your care has preserved my spirit. Yet these things you hid in your heart. I know that this was your purpose. If I sin, you watch me. And do not quit me of my iniquity. If I'm guilty, woe to me. If I'm in the right, I cannot lift up my head, for I'm filled with disgrace and Look on my affliction. And where my head lifted up, you would haunt me like a lion and again work wonders against me. You renew your witnesses against me and increase your vexation towards me. You bring fresh troops against me. He said, I've been made in the likeness that you would have for me, but it's like the toddlers in the nursery right now, they build a tower of blocks just so they can knock it down. I've been made like glass just so you could get delight in watching it shatter. I've been formed by clay just so you could enjoy shooting it and watching it explode. He says, why have you made me like this? Any new encouragement, verses 15 and 17, suddenly become a new level of suffering. If he's in the right, he can't even lift up his head because he's filled with disgrace. If his head was lifted up, then God would hunt him down like a lion and work wonders against me. God keeps bringing armies. That's the, the phrase he's using there, armies against me. And God increases his vexation against him, bring fresh troops against me. And Job, what Job is saying is emotionally, even when I begin to recover, because we know he's not recovering physically, as I, even when I begin to recover emotionally, there's just another blow. It's like I can't even get a breath of air to recover at all. It's like you're flipping the famous phrase on the on its head every cloud has a silver lining for the one who's suffering like this every silver cloud has a thunderstorm lining every all they can see is the negative all they feel is the hurt they're not crazy they're hurting and so he goes to his last question in the chapter then why don't you just kill me Verses 18 through 22, if this is what you've done, God, why did you bring me out of the womb? Would that I had died before any eye had seen me, and words though I had not been carried from the womb to the grave. Are not my days few? And cease and leave me alone that I may find a little cheer. Before I go, 
I shall not return to the land of darkness and deep shadow, the land of gloom like thick darkness, like deep shadow, without any order, where light is as thick as darkness. Why doesn't God just kill me? The fact, though, that Job is asking these questions of God does point us to a sliver of hope. Job simply cannot reconcile what he's experiencing with his confidence that God is loving and powerful. He can't mesh up everything he's ever experienced or believed about God's sovereignty and his love and what's going on in his life right now. Remember that what someone says in their pain is not their last word. Remember that the fact that Job is wrestling with God, praying to God, and asking God's questions is still a sign of trust. Why does he keep doing this? Because he's convinced God's the only one that can have answers. That is so critically important. Job has not suddenly flipped to to worshiping some Babylonian idol. Job has not suddenly flipped to be worshiping some Egyptian false god. He keeps going back to God because he knows that's the only place there could be answers phrase out there how can you tell when a drug addict is lying their lips are moving you stop asking people like that questions because you know that you're never going to get an honest response you don't ask a sociopath if they care they'll lie to you and it's probably a waste of time to ask a toddler who still has the oreo crumbs on their mouth if they ate a cookie you know the truth god knows the truth they know the truth but they're not going to tell you the truth In other words, we don't ask people that we don't have any confidence they're going to be honest with us. Even in a court of law, attorneys are trained. You don't ask a question you don't already know the answer to. So why does Job keep asking God? Because he's always trusted him, and even in the midst of this, he still does. He's asking because there's no one else to turn to other than God. Surely only God has answers, so he keeps asking. And so even in his confused mind and his hurting heart, there is some trust. Now, that, so that's what's going on in his mind and his heart. That's, that's what's happening. Uh, ten is not a product of nine. It's, it's just an exposure of his heart. Nine is kind of how it comes out in his complaint. And so that's what we want to work through. And it's his idea of how to resolve all this mess then. And so we can take all the confusion of ten and all the questions of ten and then ask, how does he try to resolve this problem? How does Job work through it? Now, there's two ways we could take this court case, right? The first way is that this is a court case of Job versus his sin. Can you prove that Job is a sinner? The other way, though, to take this court case is Job versus God. Is God right in what he's doing to Job? And both of these are actually tied up together in Job's mind. If I'm a sinner, then I deserve it. If I'm righteous, then I don't. And so if I'm righteous, then God is wrong. If I'm a sinner, then God is right. But I know that I'm not a sinner. And so you see the confusion. But he asks, can I stand before God legally right? Justified is our New Testament term. Declared righteous. You know, in our court system, we don't have a declaration of innocent. We only have a declaration of not guilty. They're not the same. And so what Job is looking for is a declaration of innocent. And he can't figure out how to get there because like any good lawyer, what he does in chapter 9 is consider his opponent in the case. What is this going to be like? And so let's watch as he works his way through it. In Job chapter 9, 
introduction is this way. Then Job answers and says, truly I know that it is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? How can I be vindicated? How can I be justified? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has hardened himself against him and succeeded. He who removes mountains, and they know it not, when he overturns them in his anger. Now, I just want to pause here. What, what, I, what he's doing is in chapter, in verse 4, is he's saying, if we have this court case where I want to be vindicated, my opponent, the guy on the other side of the aisle, is God. He's all-powerful, right? Like, he's kind of got all wisdom and all power and all might. How do you argue with somebody that is that? Have you ever had an argument with somebody and they're always right? Even if they think they're always right, you know they're not. But it just like burns your bacon, doesn't it? It's so frustrating. It's so frustrating to deal with people that would say, I'm, I'm never wrong, or I, they can never humble themselves and admit wrong. And, but what do you do with somebody who literally is never wrong? They're always right. And that's who God is. And so God is perfectly righteous, perfectly holy, perfectly justified in all he does, and he's immensely powerful. And so what Job is going to do in verses 5 through 10, it's better, I think, to preload you before we read it to understand, is he's then going to consider how does God use his power? How does God use his might? Now, so if we were teaching a class that was more interactive, less sermonic and lecture, and I would ask you, how does God prove his power? We might come up with all kinds of ways, right? That God has set the seas in their place, and he holds the world together. Uh, And if if the earth drifts off its axis a few degrees, we all freeze to death or die. And he holds the sun in the place, and gravity, and laws of thermodynamics. Look at the majesty of God. Examine a flower up close and just see the beauty that God has made it. Consider an animal walking around and see how they operate, and you're like, God, how did you make that? And we see power, and we might even think New Testament, the power of Christ coming as the perfect God-man, never sinning, voluntarily dying for our sins, and then resurrecting the third day, and then healing the lepers and the disease. We might think of all kinds of ways that we see God's power, but how does someone suffering think about God's power? His sovereignty. And so verses 5 and 10 are not comfortable, But as Job is considering his opponent in the courtroom, listen to how he describes how God would use his power. He who removes mountains, and they know it not, when he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea, who made the bear and and Orion, the Pleiades and the chambers of the south, who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. Now, None of those are positive. None of them. Taking a mountain and crushing it. Trampling the seas. It has this image of tsunamis, earthquakes. He created the, the bear and the Orion and the Pleiades. These are constellation stars widely used by both seafarers and land navigators, nomads as they would cross the deserts. They would guide themselves by the stars. But earlier he said that God can hide the stars in the sun. Can you imagine being in the middle of the desert and your, only, your GPS system is the stars and suddenly they're gone? You're lost. You don't know where to go. You don't know what to do. And so Job sees God using his power, not with things like resurrection power or creation power or holding things together. He sees it as chaotic and destructive. That which would guide you is stripped from you. 
the cornerstones and the bedrock upon which you would build your life, it suddenly crumbles out from underneath you. It is the cry of the suffering, the deeply suffering. Hear me now. They ask, am I the only one? And they feel like they're the only one. And if they walk with Jesus, I'll be honest with you, they, they'll feel like they're the only one and at the same time feel guilty about feeling like they're the only one. Because they know they're not. But it feels that way. Suffering it looms so large in their life and in their mind. It's the ache of the grieving that everything stable has been taken away from them. It's the sense of the hurting that all that is good can be gone in an instant. That leaves them feeling like they walk, stand, and move on shifting sand. Man, Job has PTSD and doesn't even know it. Even if Job were to be restored at this point, Job would walk around with constant terror that it could all just be removed in an instant. I mean, he had one fateful day where everything was gone. People wrestling with puzzling pain, they can't get their minds to settle. Sovereignty, which should bring them comfort, only feels like it makes things worse. In church history, there are two large doorways through which the majority of heresy has entered. Two doorways, majority of heresy. Doorway number one, not going to talk about. That is, how can a righteous God judge people? Hell. Can't be hell. How can people spend eternity in hell? Entire religions are formed around the resistance to the truth of hell. They can't reconcile justice, right? That's doorway number one. Doorway number two is God's sovereignty. And they can't reconcile the concept of how God can be so powerful and over all things, and yet terrible things happen. And so they come up with all kinds of heretical solutions, open theism. Open theism believes God doesn't really know what's going to happen. He's just like the best chess player that's ever been. And he can think ahead 9,000 moves, but at move 9,001, he misses it. That, that, that's how they reconcile it. And there's all kinds of other heresies and it's not really God, he's not really powerful, um, he's not really in control, he's in control but he doesn't care, right? Um, that, that's the concept that God wound up the world like a clock, let it go, and when it winds down, it winds down. It's, there's all kinds of heresies and Job is wrestling here. People wrestling with intense, deep grief and puzzling pain are going to wrestle with sovereignty. It should bring them comfort. Now what Job doesn't, Job doesn't go through either one of those heretical doors. Job stays convinced and remains convinced as we must because it is biblically true that God is all-powerful. He really is, folks. But to the person that's really suffering, they can go to a place where that doesn't bring them comfort. It just brings them more pain. Doesn't mean you throw out the truth. But it means we must humbly acknowledge that reality and be kind and deal graciously with people as they wrestle with that. And then so Job goes from that then, and, and so he says, let me have the court case, but wait a minute, what's my opponent like? Oh, he's the all-powerful, always right one. Well, how is he going to use his power? Well, I don't see a great track record here, God. I see earthquakes, tsunamis, I, I see stars hidden. Great, where that's, where's that going to leave me? Is there any chance of winning? Well, next verses. Does he have any shot? Verse 11, behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. 
In other words, he can't really be controlled. It's almost like a mystery. He's actually hinting at a theological reality that we find out later. Do you remember the prophet? He goes down the valley of the dry bones, and he's like, how's, how's anybody ever going to get saved, God? How are you ever going to rescue Israel? God says, go to the graveyard and preach. That's fun. Um, that's not a funeral service. That's just preaching to gravestones. I mean, let's be honest. If you drove by, I'm trying to think of the closest graveyard. There's one out towards Chapin. There's an old graveyard that sits there. If you drove by there and you saw Steve standing out there with my Bible preaching to the gravestones, you'd be like, call the dudes in the white jackets. Man needs help. Prophet goes, preaches the Valley of Dry Bones so that God can show this. The wind comes. We don't get that unpacked till New Testament that that's the work of the Holy Spirit. The wind comes. It stirs among them. It brings flesh and sinews and muscles and ligaments and skin. And they live because God brings life out of death. And there's an unpredictability to the wind when it moves. You experience this in your life. I, I doubt there's a person in this room that got saved the very first time you heard the gospel. Now, if you did, praise God. I'm not dismissing that. I'm just saying that's not the normative experience. And so you're asked, why did my eyes wake up at nine years old and not at seven years old? Why did my eyes, were they opened at 25 and not at 15? Why are my eyes open at 75 instead of 35? That God moves, he calls you to himself, you repent and you believe. Job, though, views this wind, this mystery, I can't grasp God then because of your sovereignty, your omniscience, your omnipresence, your all-knowingness, I can't even hang on to you. How do you wrestle with somebody you can't grab? You can't. Behold, he passes by me, I see him not. He moves on, I do not perceive him. He snatches away, who can turn him back? Who will say to him, what are you doing? God will not turn back on his anger. Beneath him bowed the helpers of Rahab. I'll come back to that in a moment. How then can I answer him, choosing my words with him? Though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. If I summoned him and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. For he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds, my wounds without cause. He will not let me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness. If it is a contest of strength, behold, he is mighty. If it is a matter of justice, who can summon him? Though I am in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. Rahab, to come back to that because it's a theme he's going to continue to bring up, is a pers personal name for the sea monster. Remember how he talked about, I'm like a sea monster God, you've caged me in? Later on in Job, God's going to reference Leviathan and Behemoth, the sea and land monsters. Well, Rahab was the name of one. It actually shows up two other times in the Bible. Psalm 89, 9 and 10. Write that down. Read this. Let me read it to you this morning. It says, You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. Suddenly, it does not want to work. Come back to us. There we go. And then again in Isaiah 51, 9. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Here's God's point. God uses his power to make chaos. God can use his power to overcome chaos like the great sea monster. God can use his power, listen now, to change the rules so he always wins the fight. That's what Job's saying. It's like when that neighborhood kid teaches you a new game. I remember going to some friend's house one time. I'd never played the game of life. So they want to play the game of life. 
So we're playing the game of life. I'm spinning my wheel. Stuff is happening. I, I, you know, I'm thinking I'm going to spin the wheel, land on some spaces, get some money. That's what I'm going to do. Spin the wheel. They're like, oh, it jumped off. You owe $200. What? I, okay, here's my $200. Spun the wheel. Oh, you, roll, you spun this. You owe this much money. I'm like, for what? Well, that's the rule. I'm like, okay, any other rules I don't know about? <laughs> nope, that's it. We've covered them all. Great, 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 great. Three quarters of the way through the game, spend this land on space. Oh, you owe me $2,000. It doesn't say that. Oh, but that's the rule. You ever play a game with somebody like that? It's like my friend when he got the first Atari system. I mean, we're talking joystick with a little red button on the corner, right? I'm going over there. We're playing games. I don't remember what we're playing. They had this cool racing game. We're doing this, racing this. And, and like, I, my car keeps, like, running off the track and stuff, and it's doing this weird stuff, and... I'm like, why is this not working? Why is this not working? After he beat me like five times and I was ready to be done, he's like, oh, we actually hold the controller over this way. Me and Chris Burns about to have a throwdown and showdown, if you know what I'm saying? He's just changing the rules. Like, I'd, I'd like to, can we get a baseline for the rules? And what Job is saying is God can change the rules at any time. How do you win a court case with someone who can always change the rules? Job knows he's blameless. Job knows God knows he's blameless. But God could use his power even somehow to make Job wrong when you get in verse 20. Though I'm in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I'm blameless, he would prove me perverse. Sovereignty, which should bring comfort to Job, is just another tool to hurt him. Because his power and his wisdom are always going to win. And then thirdly, God's sovereignty makes this for an unfair fight. And so he concludes with this, mind, this mindset. Verse 21, I am blameless. I regard not myself. I loathe my life. It is all one. Therefore, I say, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it is not he, who then is it? And this is what Job is saying. Literally every person I've ever met who is hurting as a result of others it's not fair. I'm blameless. I don't deserve this. Hear me now. He's right. Listen to what God said in Job 2.3. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason sometimes you are suffering puzzling pain right it can be from others it can be through nature it can be circumstances and you didn't deserve it you didn't earn it it's wrong it's not fair it's not reasonable and it hurts your heart and it confuses your mind. Just recognize this. You're in really good company here because God said he's the most blameless and righteous man on the planet. So can I just appeal to you before we go to the next section? Stop feeling guilty over your confused mind, your hurting heart. You don't need to. And so then how's Job going to deal with this? So Job figures, well, the court case isn't going to work, even though this will become a theme he keeps coming back to this mindset, if only I could be vindicated. We'll look at that as we study the book of Job further. 
But for now, he, want, he does want to be free from his suffering. So what could he do to, be, to get out of his suffering? And he comes up with three plans, and I, and I think this is interesting because my own heart has been tempted by all three of these at various times. And I'm like, this is amazing how clear the word speaks into the lives of those that are suffering or grieving. And so his threefold plan is, first of all, fake it till you make it. <laughs> how can I deal with my grief and my sorrow? So he says, verse 25, my days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. They see no good. They go by like skiffs of a reed, like an eagle sweeping on the prey. And so his point is, my life's going to end soon. Life's, you ever heard this? Life's too short to hurt this bad. That's what he's saying. Life's too short to be this miserable. I can't get an answer from God in my complaint. Here's my plan. Number one, verse 27. If I say I will forget my complaint, I will put off my sad face and be of good cheer. All ten kids are dead. All of his wealth is gone. His wife's abandoned him. And he's sitting in sackcloth and ashes covered in boils. And he's going to slap a smile on his face? I'm going to fake it till I make it. But what if I do this? I become afraid of all my suffering, for I know you will not hold me innocent. I shall be condemned. Why then do I labor in vain? Faking it till you make it when you're in the midst of deep grief is like putting a Band-Aid on cancer. And it only makes it worse. You know it's still there. You know the hurt's still there. And he points his mind to the, the why do I labor in vain? It's really, really really hard so basically he's saying is i'm going to take my emotional reserves and i'm going to focus them on trying to pretend like things aren't as bad as they are now i think there's all kinds of reasons people do this i think there's all kinds of motivations people do this but 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 my own heart's definitely been tempted that way sometimes we do that we fake it till we make it because we don't want to always be talking about our grief we get tired of being the suffering one you ever been there before you just get tired. Somebody asks you how you're doing. You don't want to tell them, not because you don't, you don't trust them or you don't love them. You just don't want to talk about it anymore. So you slap a smile and say, great. And you pray and you hope they're not the person who'll say, no, really. And you'll be like, all right, fine. It, it stinks. But you work really, really hard. But I want, you to point, I want to point you, but it will not solve his deepest heart Verse 28, I know you will not hold me innocent. Remember, Job's biggest issue, it isn't out here, right? It's not Eliphaz and, and Zophar, and it's, it's not Bildad. It's not these guys. It's not the shepherds that are going in and out of town making up songs about him. His biggest issue is, why doesn't God love me anymore? And faking it till you make it with everybody else, maybe sometimes you fake it till you make it because you just want to make them comfortable. Never deals with what's going on on the inside. He says, that's not going to comfort me. So plan one, plan A, fake it till you make it, no good. Uh, plan B, religious try hard. You know what a try hard is? That's a person that over tries, right? He says this, if I wash myself with snow, now look, we've got some people in our church that can't. I don't know if anyone washing themselves with snow, but I'm a hard no on that option. I like my hot water. I don't want to wash with snow. And it's kind of like a self abusing way to think about it but if i shall wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye you do make soap from lye but this is some caustic stuff here yet you will plunge me into a pit and my own clothes will abhor me 
And that's like me as a kid growing up, my mom being like, now how many days in a row have you worn that shirt? Remember told me once, she said, man, that thing's so stiff it could probably stand up on its own. I'm washing myself with snow, I'm using caustic lye, yet you plunge me in a pit, my own clothes will abhor me. For the problem is not external. And Job's friends are actually preaching this to him. Repent, Job, repent. You know one of the things I've done when I've been suffering? Is I've tried to start thinking of every possible sin that I've committed. And I usually start recently. Any possible sin. Man, a roll of the eyes at my wife. uh, Angry tone with my kids. Um, not praying, not reading my Bible, getting angry because my neighbor keeps parking his car right behind my driveway. I know that sounds petty, but sometimes I'm that petty. I start just going through everything. You ever do that? I don't know, maybe, it's, maybe I'm the only one here, right? It's, maybe it's just me and one other. But just out of this mindset, man, if I would just repent of the right thing, then the suffering would stop. Man, God, did you give my wife cancer because of me? Is there anything I've done wrong? Anything I didn't confess? And I can't point to any sin why I broke my foot, but I'd break my foot because of something I did wrong? And I get what Job's going through right here, right? Like, man, there's got to be something. And his point is, if he did all that, God could still just plunge. In other words, God could still find guilt. You know why? And it's interesting here. Job, when the Bible says he's blameless and he's righteous, and Job says he's blameless, he's not saying he's sinless. There's only one who's ever sinless. Remember as a kid, I'd hear sometimes communion sermons. And it'd be like, the way I heard it, right? So I'm not faulting my pastors. I'm just not. But the way I heard it as a kid, growing up, man, I'm about to take communion. Man, if you take the communion unrighteously god man some of you are sick and you're dead and i'm the kind of kid something weird things have happened to steve johns his whole life weird things right so i'm sitting there man and i'm racking my brain man i don't because i was terrified that i would choke on the cracker i'd hit that juice you smoke it somehow it'd kill me terrified because i was under this conception that when God said, be holy as I am holy, that in every aspect of my life of lacks of holiness or of sinfulness, that God was angry with me and wrathful towards me and irritated with me and just waiting to crush me. And sometimes when you're suffering, you can go down that hole. And his point is, what is the point of a stricter religion if God could still find fault? So he comes to one last one. And it's fascinating here because he goes to one to something that Eliphaz, the bad friend, mentioned earlier. If there could only be someone to defend him. He says this way, uh, For he is not a man as I am that I might answer him, and we should come to trial together. How can we enter this courtroom? There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. Let him take his right away from me. Let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him for I am not so in myself. He says, I'm looking for a mediator who could lay his hand on God and Job and vindicate Job. 
He says, that, that, that's impossible, right? I'm looking for someone who would be powerful enough to tell God, God, it's time to take the rod away. Quit beating him. He's okay. He's looking for a mediator who could build a bridge of communication. He's looking for a mediator who would not terrify Job any longer. Job is saying, and he doesn't even know it, but this is what he's saying. Give me Jesus! And Job, in this moment, doesn't believe he exists. There is no mediator. There is no one to stand between him and God. How our hearts want to reach out to Job and say to him, Jesus is near to the brokenhearted. Jesus doesn't despise you, Job. Jesus loves him so much that he's going to take all the wrath for Job's sin so that Job never has to be afraid of God's wrath. Job doesn't know any of that yet. So where does Job do? What does Job, this is all his complaint to his friends. What does he do? Listen to the very next thing he says. I loathe my life. I will give free utterance to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. A hurting heart and a confused mind is one in which there is no hope. And so how do we heal a heart and clear the mind? Eliphaz robbed Job of the concept of a mediator. He said, there is no holy one who will stand for you. And Bildad would rob him of the grace that such a mediator would, would bring because he robbed him of any kind of sacrifice of suffering because Bildad robbed him of any idea that there could be suffering that's undeserved. And so when you wrap that together, what they rob him of is of the Messiah. Why are you against me is his question he asks. God's not against him. We know this. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether a Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world, or life or death or the present or future, all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God. Listen, in Corinthians, they have this massive identity crisis of who do I belong to? And Paul is telling them, you all are in Christ, and you have Christ, and Christ is God, so you're safe in him. Quit trying to find your identity somewhere else. People experiencing deep grief and profound suffering, puzzling pain specifically, have an identity crisis. They are experiencing loss of some kind. Loss of health, loss of wealth, loss of relationships. We have words for someone who loses a spouse. We call them widows or widowers. We have words for someone who loses a parent. We call them orphans. We don't even have words for someone who loses a child. And Job's lost ten of them. He's not a father anymore. He's not a parent anymore. He's not respected and a just guy and a deliverer of the oppressed and someone that can help others. So he's not a caregiver. He's not a caretaker. He's not a mediator. He's not a counselor. He's not a businessman. He's not a parent. He's not a husband anymore. He's not healthy anymore. He's not wealthy anymore. He's lost all of his identity. We want to look at him and we say, your heart that craves a mediator is craving for the Messiah. And hear me now. Praise be to God, we're thousands of years later and we have the ultimate truths that Job didn't have at his day. Listen, God will speak to Job. We'll get to that chapters later. But for now, my dear friend, let the New Testament speak to your heart. There is one who stands and says, take the rod from him 
Remember, you put your rod on me. And he is mine. And I am yours. Why are you against me? He's not, Job. But then why are you sifting me? The mediator, we know, actually prays for our steadfastness. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Let me tell you, like I could literally, I won't, don't get nervous. Man, I could preach another hour on this verse. Don't get nervous. Not happening, right? And I don't want to have to repent for lying in the pulpit. So, but I will point this out to you. Satan's the sifter. Jesus is praying and he gives hope because even when he tells Peter, you're going to be sifted, and he's prayed that your faith would remain, would not fail. We know that Peter doesn't lose the faith, but we know that he curses to saying, I don't know God. But what hope does Jesus give him in this? And this is the hope that someone's suffering, puzzling pain, and let's listen, in the darkest of places. Listen, your faith, listen to me, friend, your faith will not fail because it's not as much about you holding him, but he holds you. And he says, afterward, afterward, you will turn and listen to me. I'm going I'm I'm to speak this over you now. I'm going to preach this over you. Hear me now. I don't know when the end of your suffering will be. I don't know when the light will be there. You may suffer until you go home to glory. But I'm telling you this. Jesus is on mission that in your sifting, he might use you to strengthen others. And there's a promise of hope in that. That we want to shout back to Job. And our own hearts need to hear this morning. And then lastly, the two questions combined. Why did you make me? And why won't you kill me? Job's seriously questioning God's love and his purpose. And I love how Jesus puts it here. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Two truths I just want to point out to you. One may be a practical, experiential way to, to live this out. Why is it doing this to me? Um. I hope you got it. It was Matthew 10, 29-32. So here's one, one practical way. I just want to point out to you that God loves to use small things to show great love. And this is really helpful for very hurting people because they can't wrap their minds around big concepts. That's not an intellectual problem. It's called an emotional barrier as a result of grief. So go to little things. What are little things whereby you see truths and affirmation of God's love? Jesus loves to do this. He talks about clothing the lilies of the field. And here he's caring about birds don't fall to the ground without me caring about them and two sparrows. And I care about all, God is watching all the little things. He's even, you know, and everybody always chuckles, number the hairs on your head. I know. I'm not ashamed. You kidding me? Bad lawns should be cut short and bad hair should be too. I'm all right with it. I don't get hat head. But he's saying, I know you intimately because part of the struggle, I think, of deeply grieving people, puzzling people, is they feel unknowable. Nobody understands me. And he says, Jesus does. He's studying you. 
And so I, I would encourage you practically then have conversations with the deeply grieving, whether that's your own heart or that's the heart of others about little ways that you see God's love, God's care. Then secondarily, the end of that, he says, I will acknowledge them before my father. This is an open declaration of allegiance. Everyone who has an open declaration of allegiance about Jesus he will have an open declaration of allegiance before God the Father. And i got to tell you something, that's actually what Job's begging for. He's begging for someone to stand before God and say, he's mine. He's mine, I love him. The grace of Christ can soothe the broken heart and settle the confused mind. I know that Job is a dark journeying. But I'm convinced that our hearts need truths that point us to Jesus. And I am personally so very thankful for the truth that I have a mediator. And who even right now is standing before the Father, if I believe what the New Testament says, who's right now in this moment standing before God the Father, and he is saying, listen to me now, look at my servant, he is mine and I am yours. He's with us. And it is a stunning thing to me because I do not deserve it. I have not earned it. But I shudder to think of Jesus saying, Stephen John's is ours. And I'm with him. Can I just tell you, you need to preach that to your own heart. You need to preach that to your heart and you need to preach that to the heart of others that are suffering.